Good evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read, where all the writers hail from right here in the San Joaquin Valley, here to welcome you to the program. Tonight, two short stories, both of them engaging and full of drama, and even though perhaps a little on the legend or folklore side. The first story is by Don Moody, and it's about a couple of totally airplane-savvy young guys who practically hand-build their own airplane. Just imagine sitting down and hand-carving a propeller for an airplane that you expect to fly in and then using a motorcycle engine for power. And what adventures they do have. So now, here to read The Oklahoma Boys by Don Moody is John Hollis. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain And the waving wheat can sure smell sweet When the wind comes right behind the rain Oklahoma, every night my honey lamb and I Sit alone and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. We know we belong to the land. And the, land we the Oklahoma Boys. Knowing that his father needs to understand the preparations which he and Paul have been making for the past week before the man can feel secure about their planned long-distance flight, Worth patiently explains it all again. Pointing at the fuselage above the plane's wing, he continues... See there, Dad? We've got the extra fuel tank installed right inside there between our seats. It's over the center of gravity, so full or empty, the weight of the fuel won't change the flight characteristics of the plane. Earl, plainly not reassured, peers inside and frowns down at the small converted wooden nail keg lashed over the fuel tank. I guess you've got this water keg here for the same reason? That's right, Dad, Worth responds, patting the inevitable notebook and slide rule in his shirt pocket. After all, it's not the dark ages. It's 1925. Uh, we've been really careful. I mean, we've worked out all the variables. Earl looks behind the navigator's seat where his son will be seated, inspecting the tied-down baskets that he'd seen his wife Lily packing with provisions on the boys' lists. He smiles, remembering how both boys had had to insist on unloading some of his wife's too generous food supply because both insisted it exceeded their calculated weight limit. Lily had not been happy about that. And Earl was no happier than she was over this flight, either. But he also knew you couldn't teach independence and confidence in any living soul by having them wear hobbles their whole lives. Still, Worth, a 22-year-old young man, whom some called genius but family and friends just enjoyed for his quiet, easy manner and laughter, proudly points out the positive discharge ignition. This data eliminates the engine's need for a distributor and points. It makes it much more reliable and efficient. Someday all engines will have something on this order. Earl nods. Uh-huh. If you say so, son. Then Worth points forward. You've seen me working on this. This very old pitch propeller uses a deep pitch for takeoff and a shallower pitch for cruising. It significantly increases our power for takeoff and decreases fuel usage in flight. Earl, silent, his thumbs hooked in his suspenders of his overalls, walked slowly around the plane. Remember this, Dad? Worth continues. The, the drag caused by trailing wind vortex on other plane designs is eliminated by these vertical tip wing sections. It's another fuel conservation technique. This and other innovations, many of their own design, with some having been gleaned from literature without the boys having seen a working model, have been built into the Betty Ann II by Worth and Paul. 
Not known on many of the planes at the time, the young men are justifiably proud of their ingenuity and accomplishment. They lack only a true flight test to gauge the significance of their work. Still shaking his head, Earl grumbles. Well, I see you taking off and landing in the pasture, so I know it flies, even with all this other stuff you say you've got on here. Reluctantly, he admits finally, I guess you're as ready as you can be. Worth understanding this really isn't the end of the worry, assures his dad that they'll telegraph from the halfway point where they plan to make a fuel stop and turn around for the trip back. Earl, still with a wrinkled brow, nods and hugs his son while speaking to Paul, who is standing just beyond. You two take care of each other, you hear? He knows that Worth has always thought a lot of Paul, as do he and Lily. Paul is an intelligent, kind, and thoughtful young man, and a person who enjoys life in all he does. He has eaten many a meal at their table. The two boys are in the same engineering class at the University of Oklahoma and have been friends much of their lives. Giving Paul a hearty handshake and then a hug, Earl covers his own misgivings and steps back. An hour and thirty minutes later in the air, Worth, a road map and pocket watch in hand, is calculating time and speed. He calls out to Paul. We've beaten our record time on the second leg, Paul. Y yeah, Worth, that, that makes it our longest cross-country flight to date. Then he turns half standing to look in worse direction continues. Maybe anybody's longest. Isn't this just terrific? Utilizing the paved ribbon of asphalt below as their guide, both relish this extended trip as the ultimate test of their redesigned flying machine. The two technologically minded young men savor the steady hum of the large, modified Indian motorcycle engine that powers their homemade biplane. Worth's hand car propeller reflects the Oklahoma rising sun in a whir of rainbow iridescence. Paul is humming a tune to himself, unconsciously mimicking the steady hum of the little engine. Leaving the deep emerald beauty of the Wichita mountain range, they have emerged above some low cloud cover which is dissipating in rain shadow over a long, open expanse of purple sage and creosote country. Suddenly, a large shadow sweeps in overhead as something compresses the airspace above them and a flurry of dark wings cuts out the sun. With the jolt, something heavy rocks the plane. Paul yells, "'What the hell is that?' Quick, Paul, who's altitude? Get us down now. We're, we're in his thermal. We're what? Who's thermal? But Paul pushes forward on the stick, and the little plane quickly noses over, pinning them both to the backs of their seats. Worth calls over the ever-present sound of the engine and the wind. It's a golden eagle, Paul. They can be pretty aggressive birds and extremely powerful. You can see them from the ground chasing other birds out of the thermals they've chosen to fly in. This one must have thought we were trying to take over his airspace. Still shaking, Paul calls back. I seem to remember a big disagreement with a large hawk over similar airspace. We all lost on that one. We'll take a look up there, will you, Worth? It, it's got us in the upper wing stanchion. Are we badly damaged? Gripping the cowling on either side, Worth pushes himself off his seat to peer at the wing just over his head. Settling back, he tells Paul, It looks like only a small tear, Paul, and okay for now. <sighs> Should be an easy fix next time we're on the ground. Paul replies, Well, thank the mercies for that. An eagle, huh? <laughs> What next? What's next is fuel, Paul, Worth responds. I think that's the place up ahead that Ori pointed out to us on his map. Yes, that turning windmill certainly gives us wind direction, doesn't it, Worth? Sure does, Paul. Circling once to land into the wind, they touch down in open desert. As calm and graceful as a large bird and roll to a stop with a barking dog running alongside. The wooden two-story building had certainly needed a fresh coat of paint about ten years ago. A single gasoline pump stands out front next to the highway, its discolored glass obscuring the visual numerical tumblers. The weather-beaten sign over the porch declares, Gus and Ida Jean's Gas Station and General Store. 
Several outbuildings are visible, as well as a small garden. It's tattered scarecrow blowing in the wind. The two boys, eager to stretch their legs, hop out, pulling off their flying caps and goggles, and walk up to the owner of the store, who stands as if frozen, mouth open, staring in complete amazement. The dog is not amused by the strangers and lets its disapproval be known in a continuous stream of barking. Approaching the immobile proprietor, Paul speaks, "'Good afternoon, sir. Uh, we need to fuel this baby up.' Still, the man stares wide-eyed. Then his mouth closes and he shakes his head, snapping out of his trance and says in an aside to the dog, Hush up, Napoleon! Then to the boys, I ain't never seen nothing like that before. Nope, never in my whole life. I haven't. A flying machine. Well, I, I've heard of him, though. Uh, the, the flying machine. But right here in my own store? My God, my God. You're government fellows, right? Paul shakes his head, denying it. No, sir, we're not the government. We're just two flyboys. The man still had not taken his eyes from the plane as he spoke. Well, this here thing's amazing. Where's y'all get this here flying contraption from? Napoleon, hush up now! Paul answered proudly. We made it, sir. This statement did get the proprietor to look at them. You made it. You made it, really? Why, y'all must be smarter than a whip you are. Then he called out. Out of Gene! Gene, come on out here and look at this here fly machine. A gray-haired woman stepped onto the porch, wiping her hands on her apron and stopped in shocked surprise. Finally speaking, she began to murmur. Oh, my, oh, my. Emboldened by his wife's rare loss of words, Gus crossed his arms and straightened his stance, stating, It's a sure enough flying machine, Gene, right here at our very own place. Regaining speech, Gene is immersed in wonder as her husband said, the ladies' quilting circle's just not going to believe this. You're going to have to tell them, Gus, they ain't going to believe it at all. Not right here at our place. Oh, my. Once the Betty Ann 2 had been refueled, the proprietor, Gus, was shown over the entirety of the plane. He continued to mumble, right here at our own place, often enough to make the boys turn their heads to grin at his amazement. They gave their aircraft a thorough maintenance check and discovered that the eagle's talons had created only a slight tear in the upper wing fabric, easily mended with their cache of emergency parachute fabric and contact cement. While the solution dried, Ida Jean insisted that they come into her kitchen and have a good hot meal before commencing their journey. Such fortune was not to be lightly squandered. Both young men happily accepted her offer. As lunch was being served, Paul spoke, it's truly wonderful, sir, how sweet the water is here. I mean, it tastes as pure as snow melt from a high mountain stream, and here you are, away out far from anything. Gus sat up straighter in his chair and uttered a profound, Thank you, son. I dug that there well some years back all by myself, too, I can tell you. Some years younger I was in them days, you understands. He took a big swallow of iced tea. The wind, too, has always been kind to us here. Real steady at turning our pump to draw up that sweet water. It's good drinking, ain't it? Waters our gardens out yonder, too. He points out the window toward an outbuilding. Not only that, the windmill turns out their generator for sure enough electrical power for this house. Yes, sir, we have surely been blessed. You sure have, sir, and so have we by just gaining you and your wife's acquaintance, adds Paul. Why, thank you, son. Thank you, answers Gus. After the sumptuous repast, the two thanked their gracious hosts again and took to the air, waving back to Gus, Ida Jean, and Napoleon. Gus and Iogene stood together, waving until the airship was lost to view, with Gus an arm around Iogene's shoulders, repeating to his wife in wonder, It was a sure enough flying machine, Iogene, right here at our very own place.
Readjusting his aviator's goggles to better seal out the wind whistling over the fuselage, Paul, piloting their dream baby, calls back, Where are we now? The answer to that question is partially dragged away by the wind. Well, you don't see anything below but a lot of wide open nothing, do you? I mean, that's because we've been flying over the Texas panhandle for the past 60 minutes. I don't know, Worth. There, there's some sort of life. I mean, I, I saw some pretty mean-looking cows back there a ways. Uh, good thing we didn't have to refuel near any of those longhorn critters. Yeah, I guess you need a lot of space to keep herds of anything with that kind of horn spread. My father can't see the value at all in something that mean and lean. His heart's always been in Herefords, and I guess I'd have to agree with him there. Well, we're coming up on some broken country now. Feel the rise and fall of the Betty, too? <sighs> the road below us is making big curves, and every time we pass over that dark asphalt, we're getting lift. Worth looks down, his eyes following the twisting, meandering loops of the road through the now hilly countryside. Yeah, I mean, isn't that something? And when we pass over the landscape areas, we drop again. Hey, Worth, it's just like one of those carnival rides at the country fair. I mean, wow, that was a good one. Betty Ann, too, rises and falls as she bisects the highway, cutting across the route of the snaking roadbed 300 feet above. Later, over a wide expanse of rough, broken country, a long canyon of ancient sandstone opens before them, the walls, vast sedimentary layers painted by nature in variegated sunset hues. Paul tilts the airplane, swinging down for a closer look. A deep shadow in a depressed portion of the canyon wall reveals on closer inspection the buildings, cave dwellings of an ancient people. Stacked one upon the other in a city, the colors of the stone upon which it rests, from which it was created, is a multitude of individual rooms coalesced into a massive sandstone structure. Clay pottery, broken urns, and collapsed ladders are all visible from the air. Paul shouts, Look at that! It's a sure enough city! I mean, who built it? Do you know? I mean, why would anybody build it way out here? Indians built it, Worth answers. People that nobody knows a lot about anymore. I mean, maybe they weren't alone. Maybe there were more cities around in their time. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Their quests for adventure are not limited to the air. Paul shouts, let's go down and take a closer look. They do an aerial sweep, but all below is canyon country. They find nothing open enough for a safe landing place. Worth cautions, even if we wanted to risk it, it doesn't look like there's any way up to those buildings from the canyon floor. I mean, it seems pretty isolated. I guess that's how the builders wanted it. Reluctantly swinging back toward the highway, both men are looking at the landscape below, searching for signs of their last fuel supply station. Their attention thus diverted from the airspace before them, both are startled when out of the cloudless twilight, a great black column rises from the ground and lifts, twisting and twining before and above them. Conditioned as they are to think of dark, rotating cloud masses as twisters, both momentarily recoil from the sight. Recovering, Paul yells, I think it's a forest fire, Worth! Peering at the stark, desolate mountainscape beneath their wings, Worth states the all-too-obvious, Paul, there's no forest. Now, curious, Paul cants the plane toward the phenomenon. It is only a moment more until they realize that the dark cloud streaming up from the earth is made up of thousands upon thousands of bats, all becoming airborne as they depart on their nightly hunting foray. Swinging Betty and wide once again to avoid hitting any of the leathery-winged denizens of the coming night, Paul attempts to drop below the rising formation. As their right wing tips tilt toward earth and their weight lies heavy on the side of the plane, they can now see a wide ebony mouth opening out of the desolate broken country below. It's a cave, Worth! A real big one! Look at that, will ya? Is there any place here to set her down, Paul? I mean, that's surely worth a closer look-see. 
In other paths, they find a long, flat arroyo floor between rising canyon walls, as smooth as any place they've seen along the paved route they have flown all day. On the third pass, they set their machine down. Throttling back as the wheels touch down and flattening out the propeller's pitch, Paul guides their craft as close as he deems safe toward the cave entrance. Before leaving the plane, the two retain their flying gloves, chalk the wheels with heavy rocks, secure their canteens, pull out several burlap storage sacks and a fat ball of Cecil twine, handy for repairing loose struts, and drop a handful of matches in their pockets from the box they habitually carry on board. They cut strips of burlap from the sacks, wrap the strips tightly around a dry piece of pinion stump, and drip drops of gasoline onto their makeshift torch. Even in the rapidly approaching dusk, they climb quickly up the broken escarpment. At last, standing in the gaping slash opening in the side of the mountain, the two stare into a cavern darker than the descending night. They look at each other and smile. Lighting their impromptu torch, they climb over the rubble on the cave floor and feel the sudden coolness drifting out from the interior. Worth ties the free end of their twine to a large rock, and they descend into a dank closeness devoid of stars. The rough walls give way in places to areas of old landslides. Climbing over these rocky barriers, they feel their way, both wishing they had come more prepared for this sort of extended exploration. My God, Worth, it's really dark in this place, but I can hear something. Yeah, you hear dripping water. It's subtle, but it's all around us. This is one of those caverns made by water. Water? It's not going to catch us in here, is it? No, this water's not a river. It's dripping through the ground above us, transported underground over hardpan, I think. But it did gradually eat away all the rock in this whole space here. They work their way deeper, determined to see as much as they can before either their roll of string or their torch gives out. Suddenly, the cramped quarters of the closed walls open into a great vastness. Their voices echo. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Listen to this place. Will will the light carry up there? Worth holds the torch as high as he can. The two small dancing flames seem to strike sparks from the walls as a multitude of tiny shimmering surfaces reflect the marvel back to the men. Gnarled and misshapen, long, cold, rigid fingers reach down from a vaulted ceiling echoing somewhere beyond their sight. Ground-level slag might strain from the floor toward their fellows, and flowing down one wall is a vast, glistening waterfall of folded stone barely visible in flickering torchlight. Astonishment voiced is almost a prayer. It's beautiful. It's just so beautiful. Turning slowly, torch outstretched, trying to illuminate all he can, worth slowly pivots. Suddenly, out of the darkness, into the light, comes a great beast. Eight-inch long razor teeth frame, a deadly gaping mouth, large claws grip a stone ledge. Worth recoils and crashes into Paul, who is scrambling backwards as fast as he can go. They trip one another on the uneven floor. Both fall. The torch drops a hand's breath away, frantically with an unknown demon closing out of the darkness, primordial fears clawing tear up their backs. Together they scramble to hurriedly lift the light to face their fearsome creature in the cave. The beast stares back, vibrating in the shaking firelight. Eye sockets empty, the great jaw slack, limb bones exposed for a long moment, or what seems an eternity, neither man moves, neither speaks. Finally, Wirt's voice, hoarse with ebbing tension, says, It's not real. It's not real. Well, I guess it was. I mean, it's a saber-toothed cat. I've read about him, sort of like the granddaddy mountain lion from hell. I mean, look at the size of that thing, Paul. Even laying down, look at the size of it. And look at that set of teeth. It's a critter from another age. 
Paul stammers, what, what's it doing here? On firmer ground, at least intellectually, Worth tries to steady the torch, its wavering light appearing to bestow motion upon the long dead carcass as he replies. Caves like this are, are old, Paul, millions of years old even. I mean, these cats used to live around here a long, long time ago. I, I'd guess it probably came in here or fell in maybe and got itself trapped or lost and it died here. He holds the torch higher and continues... Look up there. See that big stalactite up over the ledge that thing's lying on? It's been dripping the dissolving minerals in the stone down over that dead cat all this time. It's still here. I mean, not all decayed because that solution dripping from the ceiling has covered it, preserved it somehow. They stare in wonder at the prehistoric predator fallen prey to the earth. As the torch begins to waver and dim, their awareness returns them to the current age. Both of these young men are products of the natural world. Neither would think to disturb the remains of this great beast. They let him be, as he has been for untold millennium, so he shall remain. Still shaken, they retrace their steps, rolling up the twine that eventually leads them back into the cool night air. Close to their aircraft, as much for the comfort of the familiar machine in this otherwise ageless place, as well as for the cover of, from the harsh high desert winds, the two young men make camp and roll out their ground tarps, and sleeping blankets. Tucked snugly under the lower wing of the plane, both are too emotionally touched by what they have seen for much conversation. Even under a cloudless night sky with endless stars, each will drift uneasily through time into dreams haunted by the slashing teeth and tearing claws of a fearsome beast from ages past. Early morning light warms their campsite and their mood. As they eat a hurried breakfast of canned beans and then stow their gear in preparation for flight, Worth remarks, you know, we, we've been through a lot together, and everyone handles fear differently. I want you to know, I actually came close to wetting my pants last night when we saw that cat. As long as we're confessing between ourselves here, I didn't just come close. <laughs> Paul says with a sheepish grin. They both laugh. We do not know the exact location of the cave the young men found that day. And to date, there is no paleontological record of such a find in this northern area of New Mexico. So the cave and the saber tooth are still there, awaiting some other intrepid adventurer. And when we say, oh! I am by OEA, we're only saying, you're doing fine, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A, Oklahoma. That was John Hollis reading The Oklahoma Boys by Don Moody. First up there in the clouds, they're harassed by an eagle. They land their plane near a very isolated store that has all of one gas pump out front. Then they discover an ancient Native American city. They avoid colliding with an ocean of bats and finally explore a cave where they find a prehistoric saber-toothed tiger. Luckily dead. Some adventure. Don Moody ends his story with a short epilogue, and I'm quoting, We do not know the exact location of the cave the young men found that day, and to date there is no record of such a find in the northern area of New Mexico, so the cave and the saber-toothed tiger may still be there, awaiting some other intrepid adventurer. Our next story is by Wayne Damron and is entitled Bynum. 
It takes place up in the foothills near Squaw Valley. Here's the author, Wayne Damron, to read it for us. babysitting grandpa. If you head east out of Fresno, cross the Kings River at Centerville, and then climb the first long grade into the foothills, you will come to Squaw Valley. If you turn off the highway at the Squaw Valley Fire Station and take a narrow winding road up the mountain, you will see a 40-foot trailer house perched on the side of a very steep hill. The trailer sits in a notch, carved out by a bulldozer, and has a big wooden porch built across the front of it. The porch, with its railing, runs the entire length of the house. The porch is 12 feet wide and decked with two-by-sixes that are spaced one-half inch apart. It is enclosed around the bottom with a concrete retaining wall that is about five feet high on the front side and slopes up to less than three feet where it meets the trailer. Now, I'm bothering with such a detailed description of this porch because it's where our story takes place. A fenced-in yard spreads out in front of the porch. An old oak tree clings to the mountainside at the edge of the yard, spreading its welcome shade over the homestead. Beyond the yard... The land drops off into a ravine that is littered with broken piles of granite rocks and manzanita brush. In other words, it is good snake country. It is here that John and Mary Bynum brought together their children from previous marriages and created a home for themselves. The kids are all grown now and have moved on but the grandkids often return to spend time with Grandma and Grandpa. John Bynum, who everyone calls Bynum, recently retired from the Sierra School District as their trusted bus driver. He raises parakeets now, but otherwise has become a man of leisure. Since he has become a man of leisure, he has also become an accomplished babysitter. Or as his wife, Mary, likes to put it, Bynum is getting the opportunity to get to know his grandchildren. One such opportunity came last Saturday when the grandkids came up to stay for the weekend. The older two, Jesse and Teresa, were playing up on the porch while Bynum sat in his favorite lawn chair under the oak tree with little Buster up on his lap. Am I your buster, Pa-Pa? Buster, who is going on too, asked Bynum. Yes, honey, you're Pa-Pa's buster. Bynum was trying to buckle a sandal on Buster's little foot 
Hold still now till we get these new sandals on. There. Now you won't get no more stickers in your feet. A breeze eased its way down the mountainside under the growing heat of the late morning sun and everything was going along just dandy until one of the kids dropped something down the crack between the boards on the porch. The kids came crying to Bynum. Grandpa, we need to get under the porch. No way, Jose, Bynum shook his head. This time of year, there's liable to be rattlesnakes down there. You'll have to wait till winter. They'll be sleeping then. I told you, Jesse poked at his sister, we're in for it now. In for what? With who? Grandpa asked. Grandma? Uh-oh. What is it you kids drop down there anyways? Things got real quiet until Teresa decided to land the first blow. Jesse tried to grab it from me. No, sir, Jesse said. He knocked it out of my hand and it fell through the crack. I never touched it, Jesse fought back. Yes, you did. He wanted to tear it apart and see what made it tick. Tick? Tear what apart? Grandma's watch. What watch? The little gold one. Oh, no. That's your grandma's grandma's watch. What in Christ's name are you kids doing with that one? Playing dress up. Dress up? Does your grandma know you have it? Ignoring the question, Teresa said in her best pleading voice, Will you go get it for us, Grandpa? Please? Now Bynum knew the answer to that question was no. But for some unexplainable reason, he couldn't quite bring himself to say it. He tried. He really tried. But then he tried to slip around his granddaughter with, How am I supposed to find a watch in the dark? It's dark down there. You could use a flashlight. Jesse, who was ten, made a helpful but somewhat sarcastic suggestion. Where is the flashlight, Jesse? Bynum asked. In the kitchen drawer. That's right. And where do you suppose your grandma is this time of day? In the kitchen, fixing dinner. Right again. Can you see the problem, son? If we go to the house for the flashlight, your grandma will ask, what do you want with the flashlight this time of day? And you know, as well as I do, that it doesn't do any good to lie to your grandma. Bynum knew he had them there. The kids hung their heads. But then, that little granddaughter of his starts bouncing up and down with excitement. I know, I know. I'll take my necklace with the cross and hang it down through the crack so you can use the guiding light of Jesus to find your way. She was very proud of herself for solving the problem. Jesus will help us, right, Grandpa? Well, she had him there. They kept after him like kids do. And finally, against his better judgment, he gave in like grandpas do. Everyone was happy. 
except Bynum, that is. Teresa, who is eight, took Buster by the hand and went up on the porch where the kids had been playing. They knelt down on the deck. She took off her necklace and lowered it reverently through the crack between the two-by-six deckings to mark the spot. She took Buster's little hand, closed her eyes, bowed her head, and began to pray. Jesse, on the other hand, helped Grandpa lift a cover off the crawl hole. They both peered down into the darkness. Get me that stick, Bynum pointed with his chin to an arm-length stick leaning against the house. When Jesse fetched the stick, Bynum poked it down into the hole, probing around and listening for the bone-chilling buzz of an agitated rattler. He heard nothing. Bynum has killed over 300 snakes since he moved up here. He usually kills one with a shovel by pushing the shovel blade in front of its face. After the rattler strikes at the blade, its head will fall to the ground as it draws back to recoil. That is when he raises the shovel and chops off its head. It is one thing to face a snake when you are on your feet with a shovel in your hand, but quite another to be trapped down there under the porch, on your hands and knees, or even worse, down on your belly, eyeball to eyeball with the poison fangs of a ruthless viper who strikes like lightning. Bynum dropped the stick down the hole and placed a hand on each side of the opening. Well, here goes. He grunted as he lowered his aging and ample body down into the hole, emitting a groan when his knees settled into the dirt. He was blinded. His eyes struggled to adjust to the low light. It feels like walking into a dark bar on a bright afternoon, he told himself. When his eyes finally did adjust to the small amount of light that filtered through the cracks, he searched the ground around him. After brushing the cobwebs from in front of his face, he began to crawl. Now, the last time Bynum had crawled, he had been a horse, or, as Mary liked to suggest, more like a baby elephant. And he had been at the mercy of his giddy-up grandkids, kicking his ribs with sharp little heels and jerking at what little hair he had left. But that had been on the carpet in the house, and had been fun. Down here in the dirt, with the lumps of decomposed granite poking out of the ground to bruise his knees and scrape his hands raw, he was not so sure about the fun, especially if he was to come face to face with a rattlesnake. Bynum searched the ground for snakes and sign of snake. Whose idea was this anyway, he muttered to himself as he crawled between the piers. Near one of the piers, he noticed several tubes of yellowed cellulose, skins the snakes had shed and left behind. When Bynum ducked under the joist, he found himself looking up into the bright red belly of a black widow who had a web stretched from the timber to the water pipe. 
she was perched in the center of her web, spreading her eight long black legs out and moving her body in a pulsating rhythm. The web shook with her seductive dance. The little brown spider, who was the male counterpart of this black poisonous beauty, stood poised on the edge of the web, straining against the strongest urge of life itself. Finally, unable to resist her alluring dance any longer, he made a mad dash across the web to complete the mating, knowing full well that certain death awaited him. Bynum picked up the stick and smashed both of the spiders up against the timber, smearing them out, leaving a ball of black and a smudge of off-white juice on the stick along with a wisp of cobweb. Bynum pushed on towards the eight-inch drain pipe that crossed under the porch and lay directly in his path. He could get over the pipe if he crawled all the way to the retaining wall. But instead, he decided to take the shortcut and squeeze himself under the pipe where he was. He reached back to retrieve the stick and used it for a tool to dig away some of the dirt before he tried to slip through. He poked the stick under the pipe and waved it around like a sword in the hands of a blind man. Then... With his chin on the ground, he slithered through, poking his head out the other side of the pipe, his old eyes straining at the blackness and probing the murk for patterns of diamondback and movement of any kind. It was all clear. He dug in his toes and pushed. He did fine until he got to his big belly. Sucking in his gut, he struggled along, plowing through the dirt, kicking up dust, scooping sand down his pants. He finally got an arm through and was able to reach out and get a hold of one of the piers. Inch by inch, grunt by grunt, Bynum drug himself free. He got back up on his hands and knees and shook like a wet dog, trying to shake some of the sand out of his pants. He scanned the scene. His eyes passed over barbed wire and fencing posts stored down here long ago. They came to rest on a rusty pair of fencing pliers. So that's where those went, Bynum thought. And I blamed the kids for losing them, he chuckled to himself, feeling a little guilty. Bynum was relaxed enough now that he began to feel the pain of crawling around. His pants legs were full of sand that ground into his knees and his back was aching. A faint flash caught his attention. When he looked up, Bynum saw the cross flicking on and off like a neon sign. It was getting close to noon now, and a spot of sunlight was shining down through a knot hole in a porch board. The crucifix was slowly spinning on its chain catching the light as it turned. Flick, flick, flick. He worked his way along, one sore knee at a time, crossing the broken ground. Can you see the light of Jesus? 
Teresa called down from above. Yes, honey, I can see it, Bynum said. I knew he would help us, Teresa assured Buster, who didn't really seem to be all that concerned. Ducking under another timber, Bynum caught his shirt on a protruding nail that ripped into the cloth and gouged his skin. Ouch! He gritted his teeth and said a few oaths under his breath. But he shook loose and he pushed on. Bynum has always been a determined son of a gun. Once he sets his mind to something, he stays with it until it is done. They used to call him Bulldog Bynum back in his football days. Bynum is a good old boy who likes to have a good time. He enjoys being around people. He loves to listen to the old-time music played by the musicians that live in these hills. He shows up at the bluegrass get-togethers down in Centerville or the campfire goings-on at the music farm up on Pine Ridge. He always brings his Panasonic tape recorder along to record the music. You could call him a kind of local archivist if you wanted to get fancy. A few weeks ago, Mary threw a birthday party for Bynum, his 60th. He has many musician friends gathered from all over the mountain to make a contribution to the communal spirit of the day. One of the musicians brought a big, dried seed pod to the party. It was coffee brown and rattled loud. The pod was a fun instrument that many people enjoyed shaking along in time with the music. It was this seed pod that Jesse spied laying on the porch railing where it had been since the party. Jesse has a very active and sometimes devious mind. So he is always up to something. Hearing Grandpa crawl along under the porch, Jesse crossed the deck on bare feet and snagged the rattle off of the railing. He turned to Teresa, raising his fingers to his lips, signaling for her to keep quiet. She nodded and grinned. He laid down on his belly on the deck and pressed his head against the boards, lining his eye up so he could see his grandpa through the crack. He held the seed pod ready. Bynum reached the cross on his hands and knees. He reached out and felt the ground below the cross. No watch. Did you find it, Grandpa? Teresa asked. Not yet, honey. Are you sure you're in the right place? Yes, she said, sure of herself as usual. Well, it must have grown legs then. Bynum searched downhill figuring that the watch probably rolled off when it landed. When he reached around the edge of a pier, Jesse shook the rattle. Bynum exploded off of the ground and smacked his head on the joist above him. His stomach was in his throat, and he darn near messed his pants, if the truth be known. When he landed, he tasted the blood from biting his tongue. Bynum's hearing was turned up full blast, he could hear his blood pumping through his veins 
because his heart was pounding so hard. After what seemed a lifetime and about ten seconds, Bynum took his first real breath and began to settle down a little. His eyes swept the ground, searching. He heard a board squeak above his head. Bynum looked up. He heard Teresa giggle. Jesse, you little devil, you like to scare Grandpa to death. The kids laughed, and so did Bynum, a little. Because of his enhanced hearing, he suddenly could hear the watch ticking. His hand followed his ear rather than his eyes, and there it was. Got it, he called out. He picked up the tiny watch and pushed it down into his pocket. As Bynum turned around and headed for the retaining wall, Teresa lifted the chain and Jesus ascended into the sunlight. While Teresa was busy with the necklace, Buster wandered over to the open crawl hole, bent over and stared down into the dark with his diapered butt stuck straight up in the air. He almost toppled in, but... He rocked back and forth on his feet and then flopped backwards onto the deck instead. Then he rolled over and sat up, dangling his little legs over the edge of the crawl hole. It came out of a cold-blooded sleep and was hungry. Its mouth opened wide in a huge yawn its fangs folding out, dripping with venom. Its sharp tongue flicked, testing the air. Sensing the presence of warm-blooded prey, the snake moved out of a crevice, slithering gracefully through the broken rocks. It turned towards the falling light of the crawl hole, attracted by the pendulous swinging of two tiny feet. When Bynum reached the clay drain, he threw a leg up and over the pipe. He slid clear over the top, falling off the other side into the dirt. When the dust cleared, he looked up towards the crawl hole. He saw the snake's uplifted head measuring for a strike. Bynum was trapped. The snake was between him and the outside. Fear seized his heart. His guts turned to jello. He moaned, Why didn't I bring my gun? Then Bynum looked past the snake and saw Buster's little feet swinging. He realized in a flash that the snake was facing the other way, preparing to strike at his grandson. His fear turned to rage, and he attacked. The snake struck at the upturned sole of Buster's swinging sandal, just as Bynum dove in a long, low arch from the drain pipe. The snake dropped to the ground to recoil, just at the moment that Bynum landed. He grabbed it behind the skull with fingers that snapped closed like the talons of an eagle, and at the same time, he landed on his chin, eating dirt. The rattlesnake was taken by surprise and contracted violently, thrashing around, beating Bynum on the arms and about the head like a living billy club. 
but Bulldog Bynum held his grip. Teresa poked her head down into the hole, and Bynum yelled, Get back! You kids, get out of here! She jumped up, grabbed Buster, and ran for the house, yelling, Grandma! Grandpa's wrestling with a snake! Bynum managed to get to his knees and held the snake down with his weight, getting the other hand around the tail. With the wreathing viper in both hands, he somehow got to his feet and was standing waist-deep in the crawl hole when Grandma came through the front door with her broom in hand. "'What on earth is going on out here?' she stormed. When she saw her husband with the wreathing snake in his hand, Mary's eyes got big. She said with great control in her voice, "'You kids get in this house now!' And they did. When the kids were safely in the house, Mary asked Bynum, "'John?' What are you doing? Oh, just cleaning out under the porch, babe. Thought I'd save this and give it to you for your birthday. He grinned, holding up the diamond back with pride. What do you think? Would you please get rid of it? Well, okay, if you're sure you don't want it. She answered by shutting the door. Hard. Since the kids were crowded in front of the window with the curtain pulled back, Bynum decided to put on a little show. Still standing in the crawl hole, he let go of the snake with one hand and snapped it like he was popping a bull whip. You could hear the bones crack when he snapped its neck. Then he swung the dead snake around his head several times. and pitched it into the air. The kids cheered as it sailed across the yard and disappeared over the fence, falling down into the ravine far below. Bynum climbed out of the hole. He shook the sand out of his breeches and dusted off his big belly. Then he naturally gravitated towards his lawn chair under the oak. Jesse sat down at the picnic table under the tree and asked Bynum, How did you get that snake with your bare hands, Grandpa? Nothing to it, son, Bynum said in his slow Oklahoma drawl. I just jumped on it when he was looking the other way. But don't you try it. You chop off their head with a shovel like I showed you. Teresa brought Bynum out a glass of lemonade. I sure am glad Jesus was down there with you, Grandpa. Oh, me too, darling. She started patting down his pockets. What are you after, girl? The watch, Grandpa. Oh, he'd forgotten all about it. He dug it out of his pocket and handed it to her. Here you go, Angel Pie. Now take it in and put it back where you found it. Thanks, Grandpa. You are my hero. She kissed him on the cheek and ran away laughing. A grin broke out across Bynum's face. Buster came waddling up and put out his arms. Bynum lifted the little one up in his lap. Buster leaned back against Bynum's big belly, settling into his spot. 
After a while, he asked, Am I your Buster Pawpaw? Yes, honey, your Pawpaw's Buster. All the Bynum boys settled down out there in the shade, waiting to be called in for dinner. Well, I might just go fishing. I've been thinking it over. Yeah, the road to the river. It's a mighty long way. It must be the season. No rhyme or no reason. I'm taking it easy. It is my lazy day That was Wayne Damron reading Bynum. And who wouldn't want to have a grandpa like that one? Not only does he retrieve Grandma's gold watch, he saves Buster from the poisonous fangs of a huge rattler kills the deadly beast, and does it all without even getting his wife the least bit upset. You gotta admit, that's quite a grandpa. Friends, the writer of our first story, Don Moody, is a member of the Barnes and Noble Writers Club of Bakersfield, while our second writer, Wayne Damron, used to be a contributing editor for Woody Laughlin's Plain Folks column in the Fresno Bee. We want to thank both of these fine writers for their contributions tonight and encourage them to send us more of their fiction for next year. And so we come to the end of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program again, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Next week, we feature two writers, Mary Benton and Angelo Angarano. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Riders Read.